you have your Bibles, please turn with me uh, to the book of Luke, to the book of Luke. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book in the New Testament. Um, we're going to be really kind of lingering in two different places uh, today and looking at a couple of different passages throughout the Gospels to unpack how we experience the power of the resurrection. Now, we live in a world where things run out and become empty. Anyone been to a store recently where the shelves were bare? Things were not there. You've been to a gas station where there was no gas and they had those uh, horrible yellow signs over the pump saying this pump is closed, right? Now, how many of you have ever seen this symbol before? The empty symbol in your car. Now, if you're like some people, you have a lot of faith and you wait until that light comes on before you go to the gas station. Anybody like that? You wait until the empty light or the gas light comes on before you get gas, right? Listen, the only people that I have found that are happy going to the gas station, especially as of late, are children. That's it. Children. There's no adult in here. And listen, don't lie. Don't be pious in church, okay? Um, there are, all adults hate going to the gas pump hate paying, especially the price of gas. But the only people that are happy about going to the gas station, children. Their great hope is that the parent is going to go inside. And what is inside? A world of junk, candy, pop, donuts, right? And, and if you're like one of our children and, and we don't want to go in the gas station, there'll be some excuse to get you in the gas station, one of our children, they're notorious, notorious for saying, I got to pee. Anybody's spouse like that? And since you were headed in, oh, that's for a different sermon. But the kids know that inside that gas station, there's that world of junk food. Now, aside from the gas station and, and, and having to stop and get gas, how many of you know it's a bad day when this is empty? Holy people drink coffee. I mean, there's even a book in the Bible called Hebrews. I mean, it's, a, it's about coffee, right? Well, what about this? How many know it's a bad day when this is empty? The refrigerator. Anybody like to eat? I have a sermon on gluttony coming up. Make sure you're here for that. You know, sooner or later, though, in this life, we begin to realize that everything is running out and becoming empty. It's becoming empty. We're running out of time. We're running out of energy, out of opportunities, out of strength, out of health. And it's hard to admit those truths to ourselves, isn't it? But the simple fact is this. We typically don't find a lot of joy in things that are empty, most people today are trying to find things to fill their lives with only to discover that the emptiness comes back again and again and again. It almost seems as though we're living in a culture and a world that is actually filled with emptiness. But the wonderful news for us today is that there is something that although empty, it brings great joy. And that is the empty tomb of God's son, Jesus Christ. I want you to know that without the resurrection, we would be, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, of all men most miserable, 
Paul also said that if the resurrection did not occur, that our faith would be dead. We have no hope in us and no hope to offer anybody else if the resurrection did not happen. However, however, the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other aspect of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would matter at all. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking. It would take its place alongside all other human philosophy and all other religious speculation. But the great news today is that we do have hope. It's a living hope, as Peter said. And we can be filled with joy, not men who are most miserable, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. The Christian is not banking on human philosophy or religious speculation. The empty tomb of Jesus brings hope to a world that is hollow and hurting. Amen, church? Now, the reality of the first resurrection morning was that those who were the closest to Jesus were not thrilled and excited at the sight of an empty tomb. Not at first, anyway. So if you would direct your attention to verse number 1 of Luke chapter 24. Listen to what Luke records. He says, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. Now, Luke is talking about the women that were headed to the tomb. That's the they. They had taken the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. I want you to underline in your Bible, if you have a physical Bible, remember how he told you. I want you to underline that phrase. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other woman with them, who told these things to the apostles. Now, please note what happens in verse 11. He said, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I want you to just stop right there for a moment. I want us to, for just a second, take our eyes and reflect upon that phrase, idle tale. It's almost as if the disciples were saying, is this some kind of joke? It's not April Fool's any longer. What do you mean the tomb is empty? I mean, the words of the angel are very insightful. Remember what he said to you. What did he say? What did Christ say? Look back at verse number 7. He says, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, what? Rise. On the third day, rise. Tim Keller, a pastor and theologian, said this. It's going to hit the screen. That if Jesus rose from the dead, then we have to accept all that he said Because if he did not rise from the dead, then why worry about any 
of what he said. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus' teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. In John's account, in John's gospel, in chapter 20, Peter and John get into a foot race on the way to the tomb. After hearing this news, and if we remember from the text, John actually outruns Peter to get to the tomb. And and I'm thinking about this, and um, sorry for my really bad pastor jokes, but as, as Peter and John are running to the tomb, my only thought was like, Peter's a fisherman. Did he have too much fish and chips to eat? Like, why is he, why is he not getting there faster? But both men go, and they look inside the tomb. And I want you to see what John records in John chapter 20. He says, and then comes Simon Peter following him. And he went into the sepulcher, and he sees the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. And then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and it says that he saw and he believed. John saw and he believed. John's gospel records the most personal elements of the resurrection as he details the return of Peter and John to the tomb. John's gospel even gives us Mary's account of her encounter with Christ and records Thomas's great confession of faith in the resurrected Christ. Church, the, the resurrection is not great doctrine only. It is a testimony of how people have come to believe on Christ and submit to his lordship. And so in this life, it has been said that the greatest summary of the Christian life is that Christ died to be our Savior and lives to be our Lord. And we should remember that. The Gospels do not explain the resurrection. The resurrection explains the Gospels. Because belief in the resurrection is not some appendage to the Christian faith. It is the Christian faith. And as we look at scripture this morning, we should realize that the story of the resurrection is what explains the miracle power of Christ as he changed the lives of those who believed in him. Because each gospel gives an account of the resurrection and in each account there are differences And for those of you who are skeptical of the differences in the Gospels, let me just say this. It's actually a good thing that each man, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote what they saw from their perspective. It's it's a good thing. Because think about it like this. For those of you who may be skeptical about whether the Bible is true, if four different people witnessed a car accident, you would get four different stories. Four different details, different perspectives, different descriptions. But the one thing that would be irrefutable in all of their stories, the one commonality would be clearly that there was a car accident. That would be without question in that story. And as you read the different accounts of the gospel, there is no doubt that there is an empty tomb and no doubt that there is a resurrected Christ. And as we think about the resurrection this morning, we also have to see that there were different reactions to the empty tomb. Multiple key people in scripture that reacted differently when they walked in. When they saw that Jesus' body was not lying there. 
first, we saw just a few moments ago that John believed when he walked in. We saw in the text here that Peter actually doubted. He doubted the body. Where is this body? Did somebody steal him? And we're going to look at in just a little bit, the third individual was Mary. And Mary weeps, we're going to see in the text. Mary's weeping. So for John, he looks in the tomb and and when he steps in, it clicks. And the Bible says that he believes it. it. Actually, if you would, would you hold your place in Luke chapter 24? And I want you to turn with me over to John chapter 20. I want to read this to you. Because I think it's important to see the perspectives. John chapter 20, verse number 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved. She's speaking of John. And she says to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Verse 4, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. There's John's belief. Verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And the disciples went back to their homes. Peter's doubt. But look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. But Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Arabic, Rabbani, which means teacher. These two reflections written by two different men, two accounts of the exact same moments in history, and we get two beautiful pictures from two different men. John looked, stepped in, and believed. And as far as the disciples, the 12 disciples went, John was the I knew it guy. John was the see I told you guy. John was confident, but never cocky. He was always confident, never cocky. In fact, he was so convicted that day and so convinced that he later wrote these words. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his what? His name. John also wrote this in 1 John, 60 years after Christ resurrected. This is what John said. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. John was so clear that believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and knowing Christ as your Savior was the only way to experience joy. You know, our, our emptiness in this life is filled with joy when we believe in Jesus Christ. Wow, church, that would have been a great spot for an amen. amen. I agree with that, Pastor, that my emptiness is filled with joy because I believed in Jesus Christ. Do you know, anyone in here know um, pastor, theologian, and author by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? Anybody? Martin Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor for several years before he left the medical field and became the pastor of the Westminster Church in London. And he wrote, um, there, was a, there was a time in my life, as I've shared with the church, and I don't have time to fully unpack it, but for those of you who um, know all of my, my testimony, uh, there was a time in my life where I struggled greatly with anxiety and depression. A time in my life where uh, my body was riddled with medical issues because of my anxiety, nosebleeds that wouldn't stop, high blood pressure. In fact, uh, because of that, I was put on a, a blood pressure medication when I was nine years old that later damaged my kidneys, and I, I now have chronic, uh, medically induced chronic kidney disease uh, because of a medication that they put me on as a nine-year-old child. I remember struggling so bad in my life and I felt like I couldn't get away from the anxiety and the worry and the fear no matter what I did. I constantly looked in this life to find things that would fill the gap and fill the void. For those of you who also know my testimony, there was a time in my, my life where I, I turned to pornography to fill that void for years and years and years of this life. When I was 16 years old, a pastor that I did not want to sit with, a pastor that I'm like, you are way too old to be hanging out with me, took me alongside of him and began to walk with me through the word of God and began to show me how the word of God can take away the anxiety and the pain and the temptations in our lives. It gives us a way of escape in this life. His name was Pastor Raymond Willis. Today, he's 80 years old, still pastoring the same church where I met him when I was 16 years old. And as I began to come out of a lifestyle of constant anxiety and depression and no longer being heavily medicated and feeling like a zombie all of the days of my life, he placed a book in my hand written by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it was a book on depression. And there's a, a portion of, of that book, a statement that he made that I will never, ever forget. He said that joy is something very deep and profound. Something that affects the entire, the whole and entire personality. 
In other words, it comes to this, that there is only one thing that can give true joy, and that is contemplation of Jesus Christ. He satisfies my mind. And I began to resonate with that very thought that he satisfies my mind because the anxiety and the depression, the worry, the fear was just slipping fast away from me. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. He and his great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less. And in him, I am complete. Joy, in other words, is the response and the reaction of a soul to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, Christian in this room, family member, friend here today, John had a joy about him in the text. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a joy, and you can have that same joy. You can have the same joy in my prayer, not just leading up to Easter, but my prayer has been that you would experience the power of the empty tomb, that you would experience the joy that comes from believing and following in Jesus Christ. And for the skeptic sitting in here today, guess what? I've been in your shoes. In fact, I'm probably the most skeptical person that I've ever met. And I can tell you right now from my own personal experience that if you allow the Lord to do a work in your life, you will not regret the joy and the peace that comes. It's not an easy life to walk, believe it or not. It is not easy. But there is great joy and great peace in the midst of trouble and chaos around us. And so while John is believing and experiencing joy in the text. Peter is wandering around, doubting, confused. He's struggling. Peter and John both observed what was in the tomb, and John believed. Peter analyzed the situation. Anybody in here ever analyze everything that happens, right? The overanalyzer, right? Peter knew something spectacular had happened because of the condition of the grave clothes. But because he had forgotten the words of Jesus, he did not yet understand and believe the way that John did. You know, many theologians and, and commentators, as I was studying the life of Peter, uh, preparing for this, many, many theologians and commentators believe that Peter struggled to believe until the moment that he was eating breakfast with Jesus on the beach. Days later, he struggled to believe. When Peter looked at the tomb, it was obvious that there was no body. But did grave robbers steal the body? And if they did, then why did they leave the burial clothes? Why did they leave the spices behind? Why would the armed guards not stop somebody from stealing the body of Jesus? I mean, obviously, there are a lot of questions, and I bet there are probably questions of people sitting in this room right now about whether or not any of this is true. So let me ask you this question. If you got a letter that said you had a distant relative that left you a hefty inheritance. If it came by registered mail, 
if it came on professional stationery with legal jargon, would you do more than wonder? You would at least check it out, right? You, you would investigate. I mean, you would. Don't even say that you wouldn't. You would. You wouldn't just keep ignoring the fact that your whole life could change and things could be so different. You would go and find out. Now, I want you to see what John says. John says this, and this is the record that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. And he that has the Son has life. And he that has not the Son of God has not life. And that's God's essential message to man. The eternal life is a gift from God received only through Jesus Christ. It is all about Jesus. And living in Jesus is evidence of that. In stating the message so plainly here in the text, John hopes to persuade you to believe. And even if you're in this room and you already believe, he wants you to know that you have eternal life. That you have assurance of eternal life and that you may continue in belief. That may you continue in deepening the faith. And so ask yourself a question. Contemplate with me just a moment. Have you got all the answers to all of life's questions? Do you? And are you satisfied with the answers that you have? Does that satisfy you? Is my life empty? Or is it full only by the world's standards? Or are you still looking for answers this morning? I want you to take just a moment and I would like you to direct your attention to the the screens. And before you play that video, there is a man uh, that I have come to listen to, uh, watch the moments of times where he's spoken in churches And if I'm not mistaken, I've read every book that he has written. And it's not C.S. Lewis, for those of you who are wondering. (laughs) Um, This man's name is Lee Strobel. For those of you who do not know or know much about Lee Strobel, Lee Strobel was an atheist. Um, His wife at one time was also an agnostic. Lee Strobel was a, um, um, a journalist. And he went through this process of trying to disprove the existence of God, and which in turn led him to salvation, and writing a book called The Case for Christ. Now, why don't you um, bear with me, because this video is older um, and not the best quality, but I want you to direct your attention to the screen and listen to Lee Strobel for just a moment uh, about his life transformation. For most of my life, I was an atheist. I thought the idea of an all-loving, all-powerful creator of the universe, I thought it was stupid. I mean, my background's in journalism and law. I tended to be a skeptical person. I was a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. So I needed evidence before I believe anything. One day, my wife came up to me. She had been agnostic, and she said after a period of spiritual investigation, she decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, you know, this is the worst possible news I could get. 
I thought she was going to turn into some sexually repressed prude who's going to spend all of her time serving the poor in Skid Row somewhere. I thought this was the end of our marriage. But in the ensuing months, I saw positive changes in her values, in her character, in the way she related to me and the children. It was winsome and it was attractive. And it made me want to check things out. So I went to church one day, uh, mainly to try to see if I could get her out of this cult that she's gotten involved in. But I heard the message of Jesus articulated for the first time in a way that I could understand it. That forgiveness is a free gift and that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that we might spend eternity with him. And I walked out saying, I was still an atheist, but also saying, if this is true, this has huge implications for my life. And so I used my journalism training and legal training to begin an investigation into whether there's any credibility to Christianity or to any other world faith system for that matter. I did that for a year and nine months until November the 8th of 1981. And on that day, I realized that in light of the torrent of evidence flowing in the direction of the truth of Christianity, it would require more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Because to be an atheist, I would have to swim upstream against this torrent of evidence pointing toward the truth of Jesus Christ. And I couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and law to respond to truth. And so on that day, I received Jesus Christ as my forgiver and as my leader. And just like with my wife, my life began to change over time. My values, my character, the purpose of my life began to be transformed over time in a way that, as I look back, I can't imagine staying on the path I was on compared to the adventure and the fulfillment and the joy of following Jesus Christ. Well, for most of my life, I was an atheist. I thought the idea of an... There you go. The Apostle Peter in the text and Lee Strobel on that video came to the same conclusion. That Jesus did rise from the dead. And despite their doubts, both men experienced the life-changing power of the resurrection. Now, in the case of these two men in Scripture, Peter and John. You get a sense of the confidence of John. He settled in his spirit. Peter was wandering in his mind. He, he was a processor and he was trying to put it all together. But with Mary, we are given something totally different. We're given emotion. We're given relationship. Look back with me at John chapter 20, verse 11. He says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And as Mary is sobbing here in the text, the angels are like, woman, why are you crying? Man, you ever feel like that? Yeah. Come on, that was a joke. The angels are like, why are you crying? Your crying is, is not going to help you. I mean, in their defense, they knew that Jesus had risen. Why was Mary crying? Mary came looking for a dead Jesus, and these guys were like, He's not here. He's risen. Remember what he said to you. Why are you crying? And then enters the gentle and gracious Savior. He comes in to the scene for just a moment and he begins to reveal himself to Mary in the most gracious and most gentle way. 
Jesus loved, or Mary loved Jesus, but she never would have found Jesus had he not come and found her. I want you to look with me. Look with me at verse, let's look at 15. Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, Mary replies back to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, what? He just said her name, Mary. And instantly Mary recognized that he was the Christ. Jesus opened her eyes and deepened her faith in that moment in history for Mary. And what a great reminder for us today. That in the lowest points of our life, Jesus is always there. He's always there. And the beauty of this passage, really the beauty of all gospel passages, is that God saves by grace. Do you know who Mary was? Mary had seven demons cast out of her in Scripture. Mary was a social outcast. She was a crazy, homeless woman in the text. Culturally speaking, her testimony would have been questioned the moment that she began speaking. And to top it all off, she was an emotional wreck. The woman was not the pillar of the community, Yet she is the first person that Jesus reveals himself to and says, go and tell them that I am alive. The reality this morning of grace is so profound because it's a reminder that God uses everyday ordinary people. Everyday ordinary people. People with problems. People with the past. People with pain. People who don't have a pedigree to proclaim the gospel of grace. Those are the people that Jesus uses. And if we want to go even further than that, there were three women named in the lineage of Jesus, if you don't remember. Rahab the harlot was one of them. Tamar, the, the woman who slept with her father-in-law for a child. And the last one, Bathsheba, the woman who in the act of adultery had a child with King David out of wedlock. Three women named in Jesus' lineage, all with tainted past, and yet they were all used to bring about the Savior, which is a beautiful picture of how he continues to use broken people to reach others for his glory. It was Paul who said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Now before you freak out about that verse, God is not saying here that it is better for you to be foolish and uneducated. Rather, he's saying that the world's wisdom and the world's education system does not give us salvation. Only Jesus does. Only Jesus does. And in, in putting the strong and the wise and great to shame, God does not exalt the weak and uneducated and worthless, but he brings all of those people down to the same level as what John Calvin said. And I want to close this morning. 
I want to close this morning by asking us to see one more aspect of Jesus' encounter with Mary. Notice in the text, as we've already looked at, how he revealed himself. Jesus didn't walk up to Mary and be like, hey, it's me. I'm the resurrected Christ. He just said Mary, and she knew. But why did Mary know? Why from just Jesus saying Mary? Well, because in that moment, as she hears her name, it comes together for her. Her identity was no longer in her past. It was in the person of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I was telling the prayer team earlier, this is exactly what Jesus was speaking when he said, the sheep will hear my voice and they will know me. Mary heard his voice and she knew. She knew. And so church, experiencing the power of the resurrection changes your life. And this is true for every person who has experienced salvation. It's true. I don't know that I have ever met a single believer that has said to me, well, my life was not changed by Jesus Christ. I'm talking a true believer, true follower of Jesus Christ. I've never met somebody who said, I really wish I had my old life back. Not ever. I've been in ministry for nearly 15 years of my life, and I've never encountered somebody who, who truly came to a saving knowledge of Jesus that was like, nah, I'm just going to give this all up and go back to the way that I was. I'm not saying people can't fall I'm not saying that people don't sin. I'm saying that our lives are never the same after we experience Jesus Christ. Like Peter, like John, like Mary, like Lee Strobel in the video. Life is no longer empty. There is a living hope. Peter said in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so let me ask you this morning, do you have living hope? Where are you this morning on your journey of faith? Have you experienced the power of the resurrection in this place? I'm going to ask at this time, if you would, please bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'm going to ask that you would stay in an attitude of prayer for just a moment. Because we can't talk about the resurrection for 40 minutes and then not give people an opportunity to respond to it. And so I'm asking in this place because as, as you know, I'm a math guy. And statistically speaking, in a group this size, there are at least 35% of the people sitting in this room that don't know Jesus personally. It doesn't matter if you've grown up in church or been around church. It doesn't matter if you've read the Bible all the way through. It doesn't matter if you were baptized. You could be sitting in here right now and you've not experienced the joy that comes through the power of the resurrection. And I want to give you a life-changing opportunity. Because the Holy Spirit is waiting to come into your life. And this is what it takes. No special words. It takes you admitting 
that you're a sinner and you need someone to save and rescue you. It takes you crying out to God. The Bible says that if we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth, we shall be saved. And so it's, it's crying out to God and confessing, believing in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you confess that with your mouth, when you believe that in your heart, Jesus comes and he does something miraculous. He changes your life. He can wash all of the things that you've done in your life away. He can break the chains of addiction or bondage in your life. He can heal the wounds of your past. He can help you forgive those who have hurt and tormented you. And so all it takes is you crying out to God in this place. And for those of you who are in here saying, I, I am a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, Christ great. I would hope that in this moment you're praying for the unsaved. And so I want to do this this morning. If you're in here right now, and you don't know Jesus Christ, but you just made, you just made that happen by crying out to him through prayer. I don't want to make you uncomfortable, though living the Christian life is very uncomfortable. But I want you to do something. If you've cried out to God for salvation, for forgiveness, for him to rescue and save you, would you just make eye contact with me? Would you just look up here front, to back young and old, it does not matter. If you cried out for salvation this morning, right now, would you just make eye contact with me? Because I want to rejoice with you. Because you, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've, you've made a, the greatest decision of your life. Thank you. Heavenly Father, I come to you in this place, Lord, and I, I just rejoice with those few people that made a profession of faith saying, I'm acknowledging to you that I have cried out to God for salvation. And so, Lord, I'm going to ask those people that have looked at me to do something really scary. And so, God, I'm asking that you would give them strength to come forward and talk to me or talk to one of our prayer team members as soon as this is over. God, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the power that comes through the resurrection. Thank you for your forgiveness and your grace. Thank you for the kindness that leads us to repentance. God, I ask that you would do a work in our lives, that you would continue to change us and mold us and shape us as we dive deeper and deeper into your word. Make us to be a people that wants no other thing except for nothing else, God, just you. Lord, I pray that you would bless us as we go. I pray that you would um, constantly remind us through Scripture of, of the life that you sacrificed so that we could have life eternal. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. Now, before you